This week on the Pressure Cast, Nintendo is getting sued over the Switch. Intel announces the brand new i7, and we say happy birthday to the Virtual Boy. It's Monday, August 14th, 2017. Everything happened in the world of video games is here now on the Pressure Cast. <laughs> Hey, hey, Pressure Pals. Welcome to the 194th episode of the Pressure Cast, the weekly video game news panic that posts every single Monday on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, TuneIn Radio, Google Play Music, and a bunch of other places. If you're looking for the audio or video version of this episode, check the description of this episode. You're going to find a bunch of links there, such as email addresses, phone numbers. That's where you can contact the show. Check out that episode description. It'll fill you in on the details. Man, what a week. We have a lot of news to get to. I keep assuming the news is going to slow down because it is summertime, but it is not. It is not slowing down. It is speeding up, if anything, which is crazy. Uh, and speaking of speeding up a little bit, I've been playing a lot of Lawbreakers over the past week. In case you don't know, that's the brand new uh, first-person arena-style shooter, kind of a throwback to Quake. It's made by Cliff Blazinski and his brand new team, Boss Key Studios. Obviously, he worked on things like Unreal Tournament and Gears of War, so he likes violence and, and speed, and it really shows. It's a, it's a pretty damn good first-person shooter that's that's team-based with a lot of depth. I'm seeing people online that are comparing it to uh, Overwatch because it has a selection of heroes. I don't really feel that. You know, I, I like I think once you have a diverse roster, I don't automatically go, oh, it's like Overwatch because it's in first-person. If anything, it actually reminds me a little bit of Twisted Metal or a fighting game, you know, where everyone has their own unique abilities, but it's more about being uh, offensive rather than playing a role. <laughs> you know, in a team, it's really badass. You got fast characters, you got strong characters. I don't know. I'm gonna hopefully have a video out about Lawbreakers this week. I say hopefully, cause I don't know if I'm gonna have time. But if I do, you're definitely gonna see it. But in the meantime, check out Lawbreakers. It's good. It'll be frustrating for like the first 10 minutes, but once you get into the groove, oh, it's beautiful, baby. It's beautiful, except for the voice acting. It's really, I don't like to use this too often, but it's really cringeworthy. Uh, but anyway, we're going to start off this episode with the brand new segment that we introduced last week. It's a little something I like to call, tell me, goddammit. That's right, tell me, goddammit. It's the weekly question and answer segment where I ask you, dear listener and viewer, a question and you tell me your answer. God damn it. And you can leave a comment on this YouTube episode. You can email, text, call, or tweet. Uh, you can tweet at VGA Dumb, I should say. All of those links are available in the episode description, like I already said. So go check them out. And you'll also find the link for the audio and video version of this episode. Now, it turns out that almost all of the comments that we got this week came from the YouTube episode. Like, people actually just left comments right on YouTube. And I, I have no issue with that. I think that's awesome. But emailers, texters, tweeters, you gotta step it up. Come on, I know you're out there. I know, I, I see who downloads the audio version. <laughs> well, I don't see who you are, but I see in the numbers, so I know there's more of you out there. Tell me, goddammit. Now, there's only one rule to answering these questions. Now, they must be your deepest desire. It doesn't matter how unrealistic your answer may be, as long as it's what you really truly believe and want. And last week we were talking about the Crash Bandicoot Insane Trilogy on the PlayStation 4. Obviously, three old games re-released on the PlayStation 4. They've been buffered up with some brand new graphics and 
Well, that's kind of a cool effect. You got the old gameplay, but you got brand new gra graphics. So I asked you, dear Pressure Pals, to tell me, goddammit, what game or franchise would you like to see get the exact same treatment as the Crash Bandicoot Insane Trilogy? Now, I did highlight the PlayStation 1, Nintendo 64, and Saturn era, but I received answers from a bunch of different generations, and, well, nothing wrong with that. I kind of burped there for a second. Did you hear that? Probably not. Shouldn't have drawn attention to it. Let's move on. Uh, Sasuke27013 said, bring back Dino Crisis. That's what I would want. So, What's funny is I was like, oh yeah, Dino Crisis. I love Dino Crisis back in the day, but I want to get a little bit of information on it. So I Googled it and I actually typed it on uh, Dion Crisis, D-I-O-N Crisis instead of Dino Crisis, which turns out is a, a, a sequel to a early polygonal 3D shooter called Mercenary. It's, it's really bizarre looking. It looks like Vaporwave. You should really check it out, but that is neither here nor there. Uh, if you've never played Dino Crisis, it was basically like the very first three Resident Evil games, fixed camera angles, jump scares and uh, it was even worked on by Shinji Mikami who was the uh, the mind behind the original Resident Evil and most recently is working on uh, the evil within yeah yeah, I think I got that right, uh, except it had dinosaurs. It took place in like a Jurassic Park-like scenario. And yeah, I, I got to thinking about it. How badass would it be if they took the original Dino Crisis or Dino Crisis 2 or both of them and gave them the Resident Evil remake treatment, just like they did on the GameCube with brand new lighting and kind of changing the levels around a little bit. Uh, obviously, you wouldn't want to do that with Dino Crisis 3. That, that's a game we just don't talk about. And if you don't know why, just Google it. Dinosaurs in space. Not as cool as it sounds. Anyway, TEG Hunt, he also had an answer. He told me, goddammit, he said he wanted Fantavision, Time Splitters, and Soul Calibur. Let me start off by saying, why hasn't there been uh, an HD remaster of Time Splitters? It's no secret that that's what a lot of people want. It was one of the most beloved shooters of that generation. And, and what's really crazy here is that there have been rumors for years that Crytek is working on some sort of remake or, or trilogy collection, not to mention the fan project Time Splitters Rewind. But that hasn't progressed much either. So yes, where are the Time Splitters remasters? There's really no other game out there that's like Time Splitters. It has the speed of an arena shooter, like we were talking about before, but it's objective-based and, and, and also first-person like uh, Goldeneye or Perfect Dark. It's badass. As for Soul Calibur, giving that game all new art assets, I am all for that. They still look good today. Like, if you bust out the original Soul Calibur on, on a Dreamcast and you have the uh, uh, component cables, they have like a weird way to get HD out of a Dreamcast. And one of the only games I think that supports it is Soul Calibur, but either way, game still looks great. But back in the day, it was jaw-dropping, and I'd love to see it return to that form with some brand new art assets and maybe some brand new lighting effects, like the way that sparks would work if the swords were classing. That would be awesome. And finally, Fantavision. <laughs> That is a deep cut. I can't tell if you're joking or not. I hope you're not, because I loved Fantavision back in the day. It's a sort of light gun shooter, except you're using a controller and you're moving around and you're blowing up fireworks. It's super simple, and the fireworks are being blown up over a city. But back in the day, it looked really pretty just watching those fireworks explode over that polygonal city. Now imagine, imagine, dear listener and viewer, if you were to take that that same concept, remake it today with a photorealistic city, like the, the best graphics possible, like the way that light reflects on the glass uh, windows of those tall buildings. I'm talking 4K style graphics and the fireworks, well, they would utilize HDR, super rich colors. That would be badass. So you know what? Fantavision as a tech demo, just like it was back in the day, brilliant, brilliant HD hunt. 
Wait, did I say your name right? I don't know. But your name was Hunt. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, let's move over to Joe. He wants a Resident Evil style remake, except for part two and part three, which is close to my heart. But uh, also he says, quote, I know this will never happen, but I want it, goddammit. I want Final Fantasy IX. I know not everyone, I know that everyone loves Final Fantasy VII, but I adore the systems and progressive progressions featured in IX. Part of the reason I want this one in particular is Square Enix is really trying to take the franchise in a different direction with, let's be honest, mixed results. And IX is one of the most classic feeling Final Fantasy games out there in terms of setting, character, and tone, especially when compared to the other two main series games related or released on the PlayStation 1. Just give me the same gameplay and everything else in the original game with updated graphics and if they feel ambitious <laughs> voice acting i don't know i don't know about that after what happened with 15 though i'd be fine if it was still all in text uh he also chimed in and said that he would like to see chrono cross which we'll be talking about later in the show uh which i give a big hell yeah to i love chrono cross not a great sequel to Chrono Trigger, but a great game on its own, truly a great game on its own. Uh, but funny enough, Chrono Cross and Final Fantasy IX, even though we might never get HD remasters, even though I think that's a brilliant idea, they are two of the best games you can use on PlayStation 1 emulation. There are emulation filters that make the games almost look cel-shaded. It is gorgeous. Uh, I don't really remember where you could find that. I think you have to Google like uh, uh, a PS1 mod, if I'm not mistaken. But Fantastic answer, Joe. Let's go over to Pixel Hans. He said, my answer might be somewhat cliche, but I want a Panzer Dragoon Saga remake. It's way too expensive nowadays. He's not kidding. It's around 400 to like $700. And since Sega lost the source code, I believe an HD remaster would not be possible. Amen to that. I like <laughs> Pixel Hans, I like that you're saying like, hey, this is a cliche answer as if Everyone else out there is just like dying for another Panzer Dragoon saga, but it's it's a very small number of people like me, you, and maybe like 20 other people around the world. But you're right, Panzer Dragoon Saga absolutely deserves another chance. It's been on the shelf for 16 years, the entire franchise, 16 years. On the plus side, Sega could always produce a Sega Saturn emulator. I guess uh, Panzer Dragoon Saga is one of the only games that can be fully emulated, but a full remake with modern graphics, that would be incredible. I'm right there with you, Pixel Hans, because I fucking love uh, Panzer Dragoon. And if you've never heard of Panzer Dragoon, look it up. It is well worth your time. It is it's just a really, man, it's it's hard to describe. It's it's retro-futuristic in a way, but but there's like a sense of early man. Hard to describe. Super good game. Uh, let's go over to Cold Blood from 3. Did I get your name right? I hope I did. But he says, Spyro hands down. I mean, come on, it's only right. But I would also like to see Jet Set Radio because I'd never owned the first Xbox. And for what I've seen, it's a 10 out of 10. Wow, you're right, uh, but I'm, I'm gonna jump on that Activision thing first. I'm not Activision, I'm gonna jump on that Spyro thing first because Activision just made the Crash Bandicoot insane trilogy. They have to be working on the Spyro collection. Like you said, it's only right, it only makes sense. Spyro is one of the most beloved franchises, at least the early entries are, and I'd be shocked if they didn't do that. And if I can say, and this might be controversial, I would say that the original Spyros hold up way better than the original Crash Bandicoot games. Like Insomniac Games, yes, that's who made it. Insomniac Games, the people that are working on Spider-Man right now, they knocked it out of the park with Spyro. Like the way it controls, the way the hover movement works, it's all beautiful, it's awesome. Although I'm sure they would have to work out some sort of deal where they could release it on other platforms, which is what's rumored to be happening with uh, 
you know, uh, the Crash Bandicoot Insane Trilogy, but you also mentioned Crash, mm-mm, you also mentioned Jet Set Radio Future, and I mean, honestly, come on, Sega. You re-released most of your Dreamcast catalog, I said most of your Dreamcast catalog, but you've never re-released Jet Set Radio Future? That's a worse crime than graffiti. Damn you, Salazar also answered. He said, my dream would be more like a remix of Tetrisphere 64. And in my purely hypothetical fantasy, the game would be co-developed by the team that were once Bizarre Creations and Sega's uh, United Game Artists or whatever became of uh, Q Entertainment fused together, Bizarre Creations aesthetic, mastering of neon lighting and particle effects and uh, complementing it with Tattoo, I don't know this guy's name, Tatsuya Mizuguchi's love for uh, synesthetic audio and visual design. Is that the guy who did Res? That might be. I'm not sure. See, but that right there, that is a dream answer right there. That is him saying his deepest desire. He's got the team picked out to remake Tetrisphere. And you know what? I wish they would have remade Tetrisphere a few years ago. I'm kind of surprised they never bothered to do anything like that on the 3DS. Can you imagine the Tetrisphere popping out of your screen in 3D? How cool would that be? It would have looked amazing. And now we have Christopher. Finally, Christopher. What do we mean, finally? And it's the grand finale with Christopher. Here's what he said. I have very fond memories of Snowboard Kids 1 and 2 on the Nintendo 64. Although I have no idea if there would be an audience for remaster, though. Ha ha. And that's why your answer, Christopher, is awesome. Because tell me, goddammit, is all about what you'd want. We all get enough reality in our day-to-day lives. Let's imagine that there's a huge bidding war out there somewhere right now between Activision and EA and Ubisoft and Nintendo and Microsoft and Sony just to get the rights of Snowboard Kids. It's the brand new hot commodity and these billion dollar companies are clashing just to get Snowboard Kids. See, it's more fun that way. Now me personally, my answer is probably no secret, but I hope and dream that one day we will get a remake of Shenmue 1 and 2 in a single package. In fact, there was a story earlier uh, this week that it may happen soon. See, the the Sega of Europe's executive vice president of publishing, that's a really long title, but it does mean that he's kind of in charge of what's going on when it comes to games that are getting released. Uh, John Clark, here's what he said. He was talking to MCVUK, which is an awesome website. I do tons of research with them to find out uh, stories for the chart park. They do a lot of financial stories. But here's what he said, uh, quote, The success of those titles has meant that games have been uh, quick to make the list of older titles they'd love to see on their PCs. The most common title at the top of those lists is Shenmue. Now that's from the article itself. Clark was then preceded by having a statement where he said, quote, it's something we'd love to make happen, something we are trying to make happen. I think we want it to happen as much as anybody out there. Yes, it's a serious task, and it's not a task that we're not working on, if that makes any sense. It's something we're actively pursuing, end quote. Woo! Baby, I got the vapors. See, did you really just say that about Shenmue or, or or did the article phrase it in a way that may look like a leading statement or a cute little reference? Don't play with me, MZVUK. I really want a Shenmue remaster. But anyway, like I just mentioned before, I've been playing a lot of Lawbreakers as of late. And it's crazy to see another major AAA arena style shooter, not to mention uh, the new Quake that's gonna be coming out in just a few months. Hopefully a few months, they'll be on PC when it releases. And it got me thinking about genre. See, I was looking at all these lists, all these answers from from you uh, very nice uh, listeners and viewers. And over the years, we see types of games spike in popularity before vanishing away, rarely to be seen again. For example, remember like, 15 years ago, skateboarding games and extreme sports games, those were all the rage. Or even back in the 80s, Pac-Man clones, those were all the rage. 
and then they disappear and we don't have any more of those and that's kind of sad if you think about it so dear listener dear viewer tell me god damn it what's a genre or style of game you'd like to see be the next big thing now we're not talking about one game here i want to make that very clear we're not talking about one game we're talking about a whole wave of similar titles where everybody's jumping on board trying to make the best version of whatever genre you prefer we're talking about a bunch of different publishers we're talking about a bunch of different developers now as we always say for Tell me, goddammit, we're not playing in reality here. I want to hear your deepest desire. It doesn't matter what it is. I, even if you're like, I want to see, you know, uh, Naughty Dog make a found object game, like a Russian found object game. Go for it. You get to decide what's going to be the most popular genre for the next three years. What's going to be the next big thing? And I'll read your responses next week, unless nobody answers, and then we'll get rid of the segment. But hopefully you will. So tell me, goddammit. And you can check the description below to find ways to contact me or leave a message on the YouTube video. Sound fun? Good. I do want to thank everyone that wrote in and emailed. Well, I guess it was only YouTube comments, but I encourage everyone to email and do all those sorts of things. But thank you, everyone, for answering. It's a great way to kick off this segment. I'm, I'm just really happy with the results because your answers are things I never would have thought of, which is super exciting. And, and you know, whenever I think about classic games, there's always one that springs to mind. Did you hear that? I think I heard something. Beep, beep. Oh, that's right. It's the hype train. Feel the PR vibrations as we barrel towards video game satisfaction station on the hype train. This is the part of the show where we talk about all those upcoming video games and events to get you hyped up to spend all your money and become a video game guru. And we are going to start off the hype train by talking about sports games. Yes, really. I'm as surprised as you are. As you probably know, Electronic Arts NBA Live franchise has fallen on hard times over the past two generations, with years-long gaps occurring often. In fact, they didn't even release a basketball game last year. Unless you count mobile. Nobody counts mobile. So far, uh, th so for this year's game, EA has taken some extra steps to increase the appeal of their product. For instance, last week we saw the introduction of the WNBA, which is pretty darn cool. And they also just announced that Houston Rockets guard James Harden will be their cover athlete. Or I guess athletes, because they, they have him twice on the cover. It, it looks really weird. I think they're trying to create a meme or something. And they've even released a demo in advance of its September 15th release date. All good, in theory. Smart moves. But their latest step is something unheard of for EA. They're putting their money where their mouth is. That's right. Anyone who pre-orders NBA Live 2018 will receive a 33% discount, pricing the game at $40 instead of $60. Now, let's be clear. This has only been announced for pre-orders as, you know, as a bonus for pre-orders. So this is not an official price drop. Presumably, because they haven't stayed otherwise, it will be $60 when it releases. But if you pre-order, it's going to be $40. Now, first and foremost, this is a smart idea by EA. 2K's basketball game is dominant. I mean, dominant. So dominant. Everybody loves uh, NBA 2K. And even if they're talking crap about it, they're still buying it every single year. It's true. Don't deny it. The only way to compete with them is with a price cut. But if you've been following the industry for long enough, you probably are having flashbacks to the last time 2K and EA had a price war. And in case you don't know, I'm going to fill you in right now. See, check this out. Back in the day, back in 2004, 2K was struggling against EA. 
the roles were reversed. They were struggling to get any sort of attention for their football franchise. Yes, they used to have a football franchise back in the day called NFL 2K. And so, as uh, we've mentioned in Strong History, they cut the price of their annual entry from $50 to $20. That's right, NBA 2K5, instead of being a $50 full price game, they launched it at $20. I remember it because I remember everybody bought it. What, a brand new game for 20 bucks? That was unheard of back in the day unless it was complete shovelware. But it had you know, been released every single year. We knew it wasn't shovelware. EA was so scared by this that they immediately cut the price of Madden down to $30. Before tying down the NFL to exclusivity. That's right, you don't see any more NFL football games like you did back in the day because EA tied the entire the entire NFL down to just their video game, Madden. Keep it classy, EA. Super cool of you. So there's a bit of irony in here that EA is actually pulling one of 2K's old tactics. Now, will this result in NBA Live outselling 2K games? No, I really don't think so, but I wouldn't be surprised if this gave the uh, live series a much-need boost in popularity. I can't wait to see what's going to happen in the chart park when this game launches next month. Okay. Toot toot. Let's talk about Overwatch, because it's hard to believe that Overwatch has been out for only 16 months, doesn't it? It feels like it's been a part of this entire generation. And for a first-person shooter, it's fairly remarkable how Overwatch is, is different compared to many of its other contemporaries in the same genre. Almost everything you do in Overwatch is objective-based. You know, collect this and guard that. Well, the most recent update to Overwatch is introducing a staple of the first-person shooter genre, that's right, Deathmatch is going to be added to the arcade section of Overwatch, which of course is, you know, a separate section of Overwatch. You've got the main modes, and then you have the arcade, which is like an experimental mode. That doesn't, I don't think it actually gets you anything. You don't unlock loot boxes or anything, but it's also going to come with a brand new map. Uh, the mode will be available in two flavors, Free For All, where everyone's killing each other, which will require 20 kills to win, and Team Deathmatch, which requires 30 kills to win, both of which are already available in the testing realm of the PC version, and will presumably come to the PC version and the at some point in the near future, but when it does launch, the Chateau Gillard, which is a brand new map, will also be available. They didn't show any pictures for that map, so I'm, I can't really tell you about it. So, I try to give every news story that we have on the pressure cast the benefit of the doubt, unless I think something is extremely stupid. And unfortunately, when it comes to a team deathmatch in Overwatch, I think this is extremely stupid. I'm sorry. You know what makes Overwatch great? It's different. Like I said, almost every other shooter has a version of killing other players, but not with Overwatch. You always are going towards a goal and conflict happens along the way. And obviously, I should point out, just to, just to cool my skepticism a bit, adding just one mode isn't going to change everything. But I'm personally disappointed that they used such an unimaginative mode. They could have made anything and they just Team Deathmatch. And I don't know about you, but if, if I was a brand new player of Overwatch, I'm like, what should I start with? And I see Team Deathmatch, I'm going to start with Team Deathmatch because in my mind, that's the go-to mode for any brand new first-person shooter that I've never played before, right? But I'm not sure how well it's going to work out because the characters themselves were not designed for straight-up combat. They're all part of a puzzle piece to form a team to accomplish a very specific task. I don't know. We'll wait and see. I'm sorry. I don't mean to be such a negative Nancy. I love Overwatch. I just... I'm not angry. I'm just disappointed. 
toot toot. Speaking of boring, Bethesda has announced yet another re-release, and no, we're not talking about Skyrim. Fallout 4 Game of the Year Edition will launch on the PlayStation 4, Xbox One, and PC next month on September 26. This Game of the Year collection will include the original title, obviously, as well as all six DLC expansions, and it will be priced at $60. Now, if you feel like spending a little bit more money, the $100 Pip-Boy Edition will come with the titular wearable Pip-Boy. You remember the thing they showed, like, not last E3, but the E3 before that, the thing that attaches to your wrist where you can slot in a smartphone and it looks like you're wearing a Pip-Boy? It's on your wrist. Whatever. Just Google it. It'll also come with a pocket guide, a poster, and a copy, of course, of Fallout 4 Game of the Year Edition. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I played Fallout 4 when it came out, and I really didn't enjoy it. Uh, you know, it, it didn't blow me away, and as such, I didn't play any of the expansions, though I've been told they're good. That's what I've been told, that they are actually very, very good, but personally speaking, I just... If I didn't like the base game, why would I play the DLC? You know what I mean? But what surprised me most about the response to this announcement, which, I'm, well, I mean, of course, the, it was mixed mixed response in general, because you have your Fallout 4 diehards that are already pre-ordering this because they want the Pip-Boy edition, they, they love Fallout. But there were plenty of other people that kind of resembled my feelings on this. Uh, they they met this announcement with, with kind of like a snark and skepticism, and... Uh, it got me thinking, I think this is kind of a new attitude. See, back in the day, Bethesda was a was a celebrated developer and publisher amongst fans and even non-fans. Even if you didn't like Bethesda games, you respected them for what they did. But now, after the attempts to, and even re-attempts to make paid mods a thing, and the focus on becoming a bigger publisher, and the reliance on Skyrim re-releases, it seems like a popular opinion now that Bethesda kinda sucks. And that's a bummer. It also doesn't help that they're not working on the brand new Elder Scrolls game. Everyone keeps waiting for the next Elder Scrolls game, and then someone from Bethesda is like, oh, that's not in development yet. And in the meantime, all the people that want that game are moving over to CD Projekt Red and just playing The Witcher 3, which is another game that I don't like all that much, but it doesn't matter because other people do. Whatever. Let me know if you plan on picking up uh, Fallout 4 Game of the Year Edition. At the very least, it's a good deal. I'll say that much. The package all together, that's value. Toot toot. Let's start off this next story with a trip down memory lane. Back in the day, there was a game called Defense of the Ancients. It was a free mod for the Warcraft 3 game, which of course was made by Blizzard. Well, flash forward to, uh, I don't know, what was it, 12 years later, and Valve announced that they were making their own sequel to Defense of the Ancients, which is creatively titled Dota 2. Not Defense of the Ancients 2, just called Dota 2. And Blizzard was like, can y'all do that? And Valve was like, Sure can, but believe it or not, that legal case is still going on to this day. I forget who is suing Valve at the moment for the rights of Dota, but it's not Blizzard anymore. But anyway, Blizzard went on to launch their own MOBA, which is called Heroes of the Storm, and that's doing... that's doing okay. Just okay. It's doing okay, though. It's doing okay. But Blizzard is making a killing, you know, off of other projects in the meantime. Maybe Defense... maybe uh, Heroes of the Storm didn't blow up, but they have other projects they've been working on, like uh, Hearthstone, a card game, which resulted in a bunch of imitators out there like Gwent and the Elder Scrolls card game, but, you know, they still couldn't crack into that mobile market. Which brings us to our latest story. During the International Dota 2 competition, Valve announced they are going to be making Artifact the Dota card game. <laughs> now, no platforms were revealed, but it has a 2018 release date. So that's, that's kind of cool. Now, I, I saw online when they announced this that people were like, Oh man, 
Oh, come on, Valve, don't make a card game. But let's step back for a second. And, and also, I should acknowledge, this is a digital card game. You're not going to be going over to a, a, like a, a board game shop and buying physical cards. That's not happening. This is digital only. But people are, are, are kind of sleeping on this story, because think about this for a second. This is the first new Valve game. Not a tech demo. This is the very first new Valve game since Dota 2 back in 2013. Think about that for a second. Not to mention that this is a genre that Valve has never worked on before. They've never made a card game. And on top of that, we might just see this title on touchscreen devices, you know, iPads and, and Android phones and all stuff like that. That's, that's a platform that Valve has never released uh, a game on before. They've never made a mobile game before, but that is, you know, just a hypothetical because they have not confirmed that. And yes, I know I just mentioned all those other card games like Gwent and the Elder Scrolls card game, but we're talking about Valve here. And whenever Valve makes a game, it's just inherently a bigger deal. That said, we don't really have any details beyond the trailer, which is just a bunch of floating shapes with different colors which is nondescript to say the least, but we'll be following this story in the future. Let me know what you think. And also, just a side note, can they get away with calling it the Dota card game? Because I think they only have the rights to Dota 2, not Dota. Whatever. Toot toot. Uh, so tomorrow, the much-anticipated Sonic Mania will be released on the PlayStation 4, Xbox One, and Switch, and so far, it's been receiving pretty positive previews. Not reviews, because I haven't seen reviews yet, but previews, pretty positive so far. Good news all around, right? Well. If you just heard my description there, I said Nintendo Switch, I said PlayStation 4, and I said Xbox One. But many of you might be noticing like, hey, why didn't you mention the personal computer? Well, that's because the PC version has been pushed back from tomorrow, August 15th, to August 29th. Why? Well, according to a Sega press release, quote, we want to spend a little more time to polish this PC version, end quote. I suppose that's an explanation. Anyway... <laughs> Uh, Sega is, is trying to do a make good by offering a free copy of Sonic 1 to everyone that pre-ordered it on the PC. Yay, Sonic 1, the worst of the original trilogy. Awesome. Uh, seriously though, this is, this is kind of bizarre for a last second change like this. Uh, at the time that they announced that they were going to be delaying the PC version, Sonic Mania was only four days away from coming out. How crazy is that? And while it's always nice to see a developer push back a game, because you know, like Miyamoto says, you know, a, uh, a delayed game is late, but a bad game is a bad game forever, so who cares? But think about this for a second. This isn't, at least for me, it's not encouraging much confidence. I mean, we're talking about a 2D Sonic game that reuses some old stages, and yes, I know it's more than that, but still, we're talking about you know something that I would say is far from a truly complicated development project. I, I mean, for something like a um, AAA studio like, like, like Sega, right? So calling a timeout, like a two-week long timeout, four days before the game is supposed to be released? I don't know, PC users. You might want to take back that pre-order. Unless you really want to copy a Sonic 1. It's up to you. Toot toot. Uh, <laughs> let's go on to the next story. Uh, we were talking about the re-releases earlier, and you know what? We have a story about a re-release right here. That's right, the cult classic Dreamcast game, Res, has been ported to the PC. Now, this is the brand new version of Res, known as Res Infinite, which includes uh, Oculus and Vive VR support, as well as a brand new stage, which the stage is actually really, really long, so it's almost like a sub-sequel to uh, Res. Um, and obviously, this was on the PlayStation 4 last fall and had VR support, and that's pretty much the whole story right there. I actually played Res when it was released last year, it was pretty cool. Nothing as mind-blowing as when I played the game the first time, but still, it was pretty cool. And that's basically my recommendation right here. If you've never played Res, if you're like, what are you talking about? Go out and get yourself a copy of Res. It's an awesome game. 
But unless uh, you're a super fan or you haven't played it before, I'd say skip this one. It's more of the same. Even in VR, it's awesome, but... I don't know. Res isn't that replayable for me. It's like a once... It's like a one and done. Like Journey. Remember Journey on the PlayStation 3 and PlayStation 4? That's kind of what it is for me. I don't know. Maybe you're different. Toot toot. Well, here's a story that's close to my heart. Hello Games has released their latest update to last year's controversial space exploration game, No Man's Sky. Version 1.3, or as it's titled, Atlas Rises, includes a sizable amount of new content, including a 30-hour story mode and additional side missions, adding more structure to the gameplay. Plus, when you're looking over the galaxy map, you're actually able to see the economy and danger level of each galaxy, as well as more types of plants, creatures, planets, crash sites, and a new terrain editing gun, allowing players to freely craft landscapes by just shooting a gun. It looks really crazy. You gotta see the trailer for this. Um, spaceship travel has also been improved, allowing for low flight exploration so you can kind of hover on the ground with your spaceship and blast stuff. And new space battles are also introduced, not to mention a slew of visual enhancements. And finally, finally, so everyone can stop complaining about this, there is co-op. Kinda. See, you can meet up with 16 other players that appear as glowing orbs. They don't look like people, they're just glowing orbs. And you can't really interact with them, but you can at least use voice chat and hang out in the same location if you want to do that. Now, of course, this news was met with a slew of negative comments and pessimistic viewpoints, but there were a surprising amount of responses, and that was nice to see, especially after all the muck that's been thrown at Hello Games and No Man's Sky over the past 12 months. However, <laughs> they were usually coupled by the statement that said, uh, they should have pushed the game back and released it like this. This is how the game should have launched. And I understand that to a certain degree. It's undeniably an improvement. But I'm not sold that that would have been the right decision. I'm not sold that that would have made the reception any better. I mean, think about it for a second. Another E3, another trailer, another year of hype. Which, you know, that's... <sighs> I think it would have been just as destructive whenever it came out. Uh, it doesn't matter. And I feel bad about that. And honestly, I'm one of those people that doesn't believe that Hello Games mislead, misled consumers because they always announced there would be post-release content. Like, everything was not there, but it's clearly showing up, and it's not like they just immediately... I don't know, I don't buy into the fact that they conned anybody out of their money. Uh, and had this come out, as it is, this year, after that year, I still think people would have complained for the exact same reason, because they, they there was this assumption that No Man's Sky was going to be some sort of action MMO, which if you paid attention to the trailers, it was never going to be that. If you paid attention to the interviews, it was never going to be that. I mean, watch the trailers, that's basically what the game is. I mean, is it as pretty? No, but if we're going to be as petty about something like graphics, then come on. But I did get a chance to check out this Atlas Rising update, and I'll say it is just more of the same. It is No Man's Sky, it is no Man's Sky just like it was a year ago, but I enjoyed it. I like hovering around in my spaceship and blasting giant blocks to mine for resources, uh, and it's awesome. And if you're on a PlayStation 4 Pro, I do recommend that you bump your resolution down to 1080p because it performs at a rock-solid 60 frames per second. The game is gorgeous. But yeah, if you hated No Man's Sky, this ain't gonna change your mood. It ain't. But I still like it. So if you still liked it, you have to check this out. Toot toot. Speaking of games that should be played, that's a bad transition, but Capcom has announced the PC re-release of Dragon's Dogma Dark Arisen is gonna be coming to the PlayStation 4 and Xbox One this October. The open world fantasy game originally released in 2012 before, re before receiving an enhanced version in 2013. 
easy for me to say. That's really the whole story right there, and yes, I do recommend that you play Dragon's Dogma. It's an awesome fantasy game. If you want something that's like The Witcher, but has, I would say, better combat, and you want to be able to explore around... It almost, you know, it kind of reminds me of, um... Kingdoms of Amalur, The Witcher, and The Elder Scrolls, but just like a little bit more Japanese and weird. And I don't mean to use that like in a derogatory sense. I think even in the context of Japanese games, it's pretty weird. There's a lot of unique features, especially the surf mechanic. And I don't mean surfing. <laughs> I mean that you have like uh, some dude that you're like, hey, go get me stuff. And he goes and gets you stuff. It's awesome. It's, it's really cool. Uh, but this got me thinking, what the hell is going on with Dragon's Dogma Online? They released it two and a half years ago in Japan. And apparently it was successful when it launched. I'm not sure how it's doing right now, but it never came to the West. And I know some might assume this is like Dragon Quest X. Where it's like, no, no, it's just, this is only for Japan, it's not for America. But the thing is, Dragon Quest X, that would have been a lot of work, and there's already a track record that shows that that amount of work would not have been worth it to port it to America. It's very different to port a, a linear single-player title than porting an MMO, and just, there's not that audience here for Dragon Quest. So I understand why they didn't port that. But Dragon's Dogma, obviously, <laughs> it sold better in the United States than, than Japan. And they're already putting out this game again on Xbox One and PlayStation 4, and it was a hit on PC already, so why not release online here in America? I don't know. Whatever. Let's move on. Toot toot. Uh, in more port news, Team Meat announced on Twitter last week that their 2010 title Super Meat Boy will be coming to the Switch in the near future. No release date was given, but they did tweet a picture of Super Meat Boy on the Switch. Can't blame them there. Switch sales are booming. They got to make that dollar. That's really the whole story right there. Let's move on. Doot doot. So back during the initial Call of Duty World War II reveal in April, we saw a glimpse of the multiplayer hub world. Now, in an article from Game Informer, we've learned exactly what this is. It's known as Headquarters Mode. Now, this supports up to 48 players uh, in the same environment, and they'll be able to engage in multiple activities, such as uh, activating a one versus one match. So you boot up the game, you appear on this beach, and you see another player, and you're like, you there. Let's have a one versus one, and then you bounce out to your own lobby. You can also meet up with your teams, you can activate quests, you can play soccer, I guess. <laughs> they didn't show any of the soccer, but they mentioned soccer's in there. And you can even engage in event-only hubs, so like maybe there'll be an aerial strike and you'll all have to work together to defeat something, which is kind of amazing if you think about it. However, the strangest announcement so far regards loot boxes. Not only will users be able to open their loot boxes to gain cosmetic items, but other players can witness other players opening their loot boxes, and by watching other players open their loot boxes, they have the potential to unlock rewards themselves by watching them open the loot boxes, whatever. Call of Duty World War II will be launching on the Xbox One, PlayStation 4, and PC on November 3rd, and I'm looking forward to it. But have we really come to this? Virtual unboxing videos? <laughs> Before we get to that, let's talk about this headquarters mode for for a uh, for a second because it sounds badass. It reminds me of a uh, Fantasy Star Online. You're surrounded by other players. The moment you boot up the game, you go online, you can just see other people hanging up. That is damn cool. I always like that. It just adds something. It makes you realize how big uh, online video games are. It's beautiful. It's way more impressive than just seeing a bunch of names in a lobby. Now, that being said, this whole loot box scenario, <sighs> it's pretty brilliant. It's really icky, it's greedy, but in a really smart way, and I hate to have to give them credit for that, Th but think about it for a second. I I if you're that desperate for loot, that you're willing to watch someone else unboxing, that's gonna incentivize you to eventually be like, oh, man, 
I should just get a loot box myself. You're watching an advertisement for in-game items. They're, you're actually teaching the players how valuable the loot boxes are, right? Right? That's what they're doing. They're making you sit there and watch it, and then you're going to be like, oh man, I should just get one of these. And I know they haven't announced any sort of microtransactions, but come on. With loot boxes, you're going to get microtransactions almost 100% of the time. Or, or what if what if, what if if somebody gets a loot box, and maybe they text their friend who's looking for like a particular item, and they're like, hey, go online right now. I'm opening up my loot box. Like, they're... You see what I mean? It's such a good idea. Seriously, this is like a Nintendo-style solution. It's ingenious. But it's also really gross. God damn it, that's brilliant. It's evil, but it's brilliant. Well, it's not evil, but you know what I mean. Anyway, uh, toot toot. Well, here's something we don't talk about enough. PC specs. Intel has announced that on August 21st, they will live stream uh, the unveil of the eighth generation of their popular i7 CPUs. While this does fit in line with Intel's previous release schedule, given that it, it's an announcement, not a full release, usually they wait around 18 months to release a brand new uh, uh, chipset. Did I say that right? Whatever. It's a bit of a surprise considering that Intel's i9 CPUs, which they just announced, uh, and they're part of the seventh generation, not the eighth generation, they're fairly new, and they're still coming out with a 14, 16, and 19 core model releasing next month on September 25th. So obviously we'll follow this story after the announcement. So if you're not into PC stuff, let me explain to you what the hell any of that means. First and foremost, the CPU is the brain, your graphics card is the graphics, basically. Now the CPU can also render graphics on its own, but if you want a dedicated graphics card, that makes the graphics that much better. And if you're playing video games, for the most part, you're gonna want a, a GPU, and then of course you need the CPU, which is the brain, which is gonna manage all of this stuff. Now Intel releases three, wait, nope. They release, I guess now they release four flagship chips at this point. They release the i3, the i5, the i7, and now the i9. They make way more chips than that, but let's just focus on this for the time being because we're talking about video games. Now, the i3 is really basic. It can be used for games, but nobody really buys an i3 for games. i5 is probably the most popular model for games, at least on Intel's side, because it's affordable. And if you just want to play games, it's the way to go. And the i7 is meant for multitaskers. If you're going to be having a million you know, tabs on your web browser open while you're rendering a video, while you're playing <laughs> like a video game in a, uh, in like a minimized box, Obviously, I make a lot of stuff using Adobe programs like the video that you're watching right now and I also render the audio that you're listening to right now. So I use an i7. Also, i7's amazing for games. So I just mentioned the i9, which is this brand new concept. That must be like the best for games, right? Well, mm, mm -mm, not really. See, every game, no matter what it is, it is made for a very specific type of hardware. It's what people call optimization. So right now, a lot of tech-focused websites are testing out the i9 with a bunch of different games, and they're seeing nearly identical results from the i7 because, of course, the developers haven't optimized it. Big deal, right? Developers will work harder, and they're going to make the i9 a priority eventually, and then the i9 is going to be the best CPU for video games bar none. Well, maybe not. See, look at it this way. They're already talking about the brand new i7 and the i9 has really even had a chance to prove itself yet. So why exactly did Intel even make the i9 in the first place if they're just gonna announce the i7, the latest generation of the i7, two months later? 
Well, some are speculating that this had something to do with AMD, which are uh, AMD. They're not very big when it comes to CPUs. They mostly work on GPUs, but over the past year, they've made some some huge strides and, and gained a lot of ground with some really, really fast and affordable CPUs. Not to mention, they are, um, I guess in the long run, when it comes to an AMD product versus a, an Intel or an NVIDIA product, AMD, they're more power hungry. They're power hungry, so you're gonna be paying it in the electric bill, or you can pay it in advance with, with an Intel or an NVIDIA. That's basically the rule of thumb that I've always relied on. And, and since Intel owns the CPU market, seeing AMD growing in this area, they don't like that. They really don't like that. But that's a dangerous game that Intel is playing right now. <laughs> because when I look at what Intel is doing, we're like, uh, we got the uh, seventh generation i9. That's right, the i9. Hey, look at all this stuff, whoa. And then at the exact same time, they uh, announced the i7. You know what it reminds me a little bit of? Sega back in the mid 90s, back when Sega flooded the market with expensive products that were just competing with themselves. So when I look at the i9 right now, it's something that plays all the old games, right? Doesn't look any better, doesn't perform any better. You know what that is? That is a Sega 32X. Tough shit. <laughs> yes, the i9 is the 32X. Let's get that trending on Twitter. Hashtag i932x. No one will understand. Maybe those are launch codes. Be careful. Toot toot. Uh, once again, we have our weekly list of Xbox backwards compatible titles. The four games that were announced are as follows. Starting off with Fighting Vipers, which is a pretty awesome arcade and Sega Saturn 3D fighter. I actually remember being at a, uh, at a convention and I was going to buy a copy of Fighting Vipers, but somebody from Portables of Doom beat me to it and I watched them buy it. I'm not going to name names. Lorne. Uh, also, <laughs> coming out this week is Batman Arkham Origins, which apparently is a 2013 prequel to the Arkham series. I don't think that actually exists. I think maybe a troll just wrote that. Also, Deadliest Warrior the Game. Uh, some have said it is so bad it's good. Well, I watched a video of Deadliest Warrior the Game, and I can verify that that's uh, half true. Also, Disney's Bolt, which is based on the film and is supposedly terrible. It was a CG film starring a dog. But what really surprised me is this game came out in 2008. That's almost 10 years ago. Jesus Christ. Altogether, not a great week for Xbox backwards compatibility, but if you've never played Fighting Vipers before, you absolutely need to check it out. In fact, back on the Saturn version, you could play as Pepsi Man, who was a superhero that sold Pepsi in Japan, and I guess gets into a lot of street fights? I don't know. Toot toot. Let's talk about the games that are going to be coming out this week. On Monday, today, StarCraft Remastered just launched on the PC, which is a huge deal, and it's totally going to change the way that competitive StarCraft is played in Korea. Pay attention, kids. On Tuesday, Sudden Strike 4 will be on the PlayStation 4 and the PC. City Skylines will be available digitally, as well as a physical version will only be available at GameStop. That's going to be on the PlayStation 4. It is already out on the PC and the Xbox One. Matterfall is going to be on the PlayStation 4 on Tuesday. Sonic Mania is going to be on the Nintendo Switch, Xbox One, and PlayStation 4. There's also like an $80 collector's edition, if you're into that. The regular game is just 20 bucks, though. Just saying. Observer is going to be on the PlayStation 4, Xbox One, and PC. Agents of Mayhem, which of course is the sub... sub game 
from Saints Row. I don't know. It looks pretty interesting. It's getting some positive reviews. That's going to be on the PlayStation 4, Xbox One, and PC. Minecraft Story Mode Season 2, Episode 2 is going to be out on damn near everything. If it's got a screen, it'll probably play that. A Beacon will be out on the PC. Troll and I will be out on the Nintendo Switch, which apparently isn't that good of a game, but it's coming to the Nintendo Switch if you're into that. Undertale is going to be out on the PlayStation Vita and PlayStation 4. If you are watching this, if you even remotely give a flying fuck about what I think about video games, for the love of God, play Undertale. Undertale. Do not Google Undertale. There's a lot of spoilers. It's a short game. It's only three hours long. If you have a Vita or a PlayStation 4, please play Undertale. It is awesome. Night Trap 25th edition, <laughs> 25th anniversary edition will be on the PC. Can't fucking believe Night Trap is back. That is a game that literally had a congressional hearing about it. Joe Lieberman and, and uh, Herb Cole were there. Uh, a lot of other people. It is... Whatever. You should probably play Night Trap. It's so stupid. It's 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 like a really bad 80s horror movie. Except it was released in the 90s. On Wednesday, Conan Exiles will be on the Xbox One. And finally, Thumper will be on the Xbox One on Wednesday. Boop, boop. That's gonna do it for the hype train. Thank you, hype train. Thank you so much. What a nice train. Dude, what a lovely, lovely train. Anyway, uh, before we go any further, there were some things I wanted to do at the beginning of the show that I totally forgot to do. First of all, please share this episode. Please like this episode. Please get the word out. I want more listeners. I really, really do. I do as much as I can. I'm turning to you, dear viewer, you loyal listeners. I appreciate and love that you guys stick around for the show, but please, please share it. I want, we need more people. We really do to rationalize this for much longer. Uh, also, fuck Nazis. I definitely wanted to say at the beginning of the show, totally forgot. Fuck Nazis. If you know what that means, great. If you don't, Google it. it it's educational. This weekend was educational. And finally, uh, check out uh, video games or... Mm, yeah, you can go to Video Games Are Dumb. Go to YouTube.com slash Video Games Are Dumb and check out my interview with Abysmal Ninja Games. Really cool developers. They just restarted uh, development on one of their projects they were working on for years. It's a fascinating story and also just a pretty brave endeavor, if you ask me. Throwing away work and starting over, that's awesome. You can check out my interview with them at YouTube.com slash Video Games Are Dumb. So go watch that, won't you? Anyway... It's getting muggy in here. We need to step outside. Ooh, I know a place that's always warm with the glow of cold hard cash. That's right. It's time for the chart park, the land where money grows on trees. Yes, the chart park. This is the part of the show where we talk about the legal business and financial news in the video game industry. And we find out which fat cats of Wall Street will tip their top hats towards Lady Luck. And you know what I like to say? I like to say the, the hype train is the what and the chart park is the why because the money explains what makes things happen in this industry. It's all about cash. Hate to say it. We're going to start off by with some Nintendo news because, you know, the Nintendo Switch is brand new. It is no stranger here to the chart park. After all, it is selling great, it's making lots of cash, and it's revitalizing Nintendo's console division. But we're not here to talk about the Switch in glowing terms, because we're here to talk about the Nintendo Switch, and Nintendo has some, uh, Nintendo has a bunch of nothing but a, uh, a bunch of dirty, rotten thieves. Or at least that's what the accessory manufacturer Game Vice is calling them, as they're suing Nintendo for stealing their idea 
for the Nintendo Switch. That's right, you thought Nintendo came up with the Switch? No, 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 Game Vice did. At least that's what their claim is, and that's why they're suing Nintendo. Their device, known as the WikiPad, is a U-shaped controller, which allows a the included tablet to be slotted in. It comes with a D-pad, two analog sticks, four face buttons, and two shoulder buttons, and it promises up to 720p graphics on the go. Actually, that does sound like the Nintendo Switch. <laughs> and of course, the tablet that it comes with has HDMI out, so you can play it on your television, which also is 720p, which still kind of sounds like the Switch. Uh, the WikiPad retailed for around $200, or at least that's the best that I could find, because it's sold out everywhere, and apparently they didn't make that many when it was released back in 2012. Gamevice is seeking an injunction to stop sales of the Nintendo Switch and it wants to be paid for the damages to its, uh, I don't know, idea, intellectual property. They didn't use very specific language here. It's kind of like, well, what exactly do you own Gamevice that you're suing for? And they didn't really mention that. Uh, so this is nothing new for any console manufacturer. New products come out, there are hits, a lawsuit happens. It happened to the 3DS, the Wii, the PlayStation 2, just everybody gets sued. Everybody gets sued. Sometimes they win, sometimes they lose. It happens, you know, and over the past few years we've covered enough of these cases to see that not all of them are a bunch of con artists just trying to shake down a console manufacturer for cash. You never know. It could be dismissed right away or it could go on for months. You just never know. Now, if GameVice could persuade a judge to halt the sales of the Switch, that would be huge. But that's probably not going to happen as it rarely does unless something is an absolute obscene ripoff. Now, I've seen some people make comparisons to those phone controllers that you can attach to your cell phones. You know, they, they sell them at a lot of things like Verizon and T-Mobile stores. Uh, and they're saying, well, wh what the heck? What makes this any different from, from, you know, the Gizmodo? Not the Gizmodo, <laughs> the whatever they call it, those controllers for your phones. But see, the thing is, this is totally different. Uh, those are just controllers. Both the WikiPad and the Switch are tablets with HDMI out and an attachable controller. It's, it's an entire package. Now, how far they get really depends on the judge. If I had to guess now, I'd say probably not too far. It, 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 it looks just different enough, whereas the, the Switch has this entire box with an HDMI out where it has these two controllers that slot on the side. The WikiPad is just like a screen that slots into like hard plastic. It almost looks like a Game Gear. I don't know. Anyway, toot toot. Now moving on to our next lawsuit. Yes, that's right. We have two lawsuits back to back. Our subject is Disney, the beloved company that has been watched by children for nearly a century. But what if I told you that Disney was watching back? That's right. Amanda Rushing and her lawyers have filed a lawsuit against a number of mobile developers, including Disney, citing their apps violate the COPA which is the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act. Long story short, the 18-year-old law prevents any company from collecting information on a child below the age of 13 without direct parental consent. According to the suit, 42 separate popular Disney apps have illegally obtained data. Yes, 42 apps. I didn't even know they had that many. Anyway, this is the second time that Disney has faced a similar lawsuit regarding the COPA Act. In fact, they paid $3 million uh, back in 2011. True story. Now, in case you don't know, your personal information, your age, your gender, everything right now is being collected by nearly every website and possibly and probably a few government agencies along the way. It's the world that we live in. But going after kids, mm, that's where things get tricky. See, these are all kids games. Sure, adults can play them, but Palace Pets and Whisker Haven? 
think that's going mostly for a kid's audience. But I'm interested to see how this will play out because it's being, uh, th this lawsuit is in California and that's Disneyland, pun intended. Also, it's a tech focused state, you know, Silicon Valley, but it's also a state that's very protective of privacy when it comes to civil cases. Uh, given Disney's history, it's not looking good. Though Disney has said that the prosecutors just don't understand the COPA Act. Or is it just COPA? But either way, they're just like, eh, you don't understand the Child Online Privacy Act. <laughs> That's a good defense, Disney. <laughs> Alright. <laughs> Moving on. Crowdfunding. It's the latest evolution of video game development, and despite the disasters of Ukulele, My Number 9, and so many more that didn't even release, it's still somehow a thing. But back in 2015, Fig was launched. It was, uh, it was a website that was made for crowdfunding video games specifically, but unlike Kickstarter and GoFundMe, people that invested their money actually saw a return on their money. Pretty good idea, right? But we've never actually seen the results of any of these games. Until now. Fig has released uh, their first results of their first fully released game. Now, this is not a game that they published themselves, this is somebody else, but this is a game that was funded on their website. Uh, the game Kingdom and Castles just launched in June on Steam, I think it's only Steam at this point, and according to Fig, investors have already seen a 100% return on their investment. In other words, their money was doubled. According to the CEO of Fig, Justin Bailey, Yes, his name really is Justin Bailey, just like the cheat code from, from Metroid. Here's what he said. Quote, Fig takes the best incentives of the community and combines them with a publishing model that gives control back to the developers and the fans that believe in their projects. Today, we've proved the community publishing is a successful way to launch a video game. End quote. I'm really happy to see that everything worked out because this seems like such a good idea that has yet to be proven. And that's really the best part. Fig is really picky about who joins their program. If you want to have your game kickstarted, you're going to have a few meetings before then. And if you want to even put money into the video game, you're going to have a few meetings with them specifically. Specifically, they weed out investors before they let them join the program. That's awesome. But at the same time, there are projects that probably wouldn't happen otherwise without FIG funding. Speaking of which, Psychonauts 2, that's being funded uh, exclusively on FIG. And let's talk about, for a second, just how shitty Kickstarter and GoFundMe is. I've never kickstarted a video game ever in my life. I've never done it. Now, that's because I'm never sure if I'm going to review a game and I don't want that conflict of interest. But on the other side, there's virtually no reason to crowdfund a video game ever. You get these dumb little physical items. It's no different than pre-ordering two years in advance, except you have even less evidence that this will be worth your time. And at the end of the day, the developers get all the money, and that doesn't make any sense. So Fig, making sure that people that put their money down get some money back, that makes sense to me. That's actual business. So good for Fig. Hopefully their future projects turn out just as well. Sooner or later, they're gonna have a dud. They will, because that's business, but hopefully their track record is mostly good. Track record her. <laughs> Let's move over to Ubisoft, because Ubisoft is one of the biggest publishers and developers in the world, but unlike many of their peers, they don't purchase many companies, they create them. And we're gonna come back to that later. Ubisoft has opened a brand new studio in Stockholm City, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Let's try that again, take two. All right, I feel good about this one, all right. Ubisoft has opened a brand new studio in Stockholm, Sweden, a city so beautiful you'll never want to leave. And why would you? Everyone's on your side. 
But anyway, uh, the brand new studio hiring has only just begun, but the current plan is for a team of around 100 within the next two years. However, we already know it will be head by none other than Patrick Bach, who is formerly the head of DICE for 14 years. And in case you don't know, uh, DICE, of course, makes Battlefield games, and uh, Mr. Bach had a hand in Battlefield 3, Battlefield 4, Battlefield 1, uh, Bad Company 1 and 2, Mirror's Edge Catalyst, and the Star Wars Battlefront game. So he's, he's got a track record. And here is a first. This is the one that surprised me most. We actually know what project this brand new studio will be working on. They'll be working alongside the sister studio and Malmo, Sweden, to develop the upcoming Avatar games. Yes, based off of the films. Now, I mentioned that first bit about how Ubisoft doesn't doesn't buy studios, they, they, they open them, because I really want to highlight Ubisoft's strategy. This is the third studio that they've opened this year, not to mention they did acquire one studio in freelance games back in January. But that's the exception to the rule. They like to build from the ground up, they like to create a certain culture, and I think they should be recognized for that. Now, of course, they do shut down studios. They shut down Ubisoft Casablanca last year. But for the most part, almost everything has remained open, which is surprising. And that's because they keep everyone busy. Look at the credits for any Ubisoft title. I mean, it'll take a while, but look at them. I mean, it will take a long time. It will take around 30 minutes because there's like 12 to 20 studios working on every single game. Have you ever seen the credits for uh, like Assassin's Creed? Just go Google them, go watch them. It's just name after name after name after name after name, or even Watch Dogs 2, just like tons of different studios from all around the world working together to create one project. But that allows them to put out those bigger projects more consistency, more consistently. And even though there are games like Watch Dogs 2, which stumble and don't sell quite as well, you have other things like Ghost Recon and For Honor, which are selling absolutely great so far. And for the time being, well, they're just trying to keep up with demand. When sales slow down, we might see some studios close, of course, that's just the way these things work out, but so far Ubisoft, you know, it's just awesome. I really, their business model makes sense, even if I'm not always the biggest fan of their games. Anyway, moving on, it's been a couple of interesting weeks when it comes to the tech industry. We're really going to be talking about this. See, a couple of weeks ago, a controversial memo from the from a Google employee circulated which was about diversity in the workplace, women, a bunch of things. And it, you know, it resulted in his termination. Uh, you might assume that giant companies, especially tech companies, would want to avoid the subject of diversity, but nope, Blizzard, and just to be clear, this is just Blizzard, this is not Activision Blizzard, but Blizzard sent out an internal memo regarding future hiring. According to the memo that was released by Kotaku, I don't know how they got their hands on it, but they, they had a copy, they released it. Blizzard is interested in retaining women employees who currently stand at 21% of all employees. Also noted, other groups totaled 14%. I don't know what other groups mean, if, if that's talking about um, gender, race, nationality, but they just had other groups listed on there. Also, they found out that women leave Blizzard at a higher rate than men. So Blizzard is trying to retain women in their company. So I know how these stories go. People get mad. They feel that women are going to be given positions inside of a company, while much more qualified men are going to be turned away because they're trying to meet a quota. And I want to address that right now. First of all, there is no quota. In fact, I'm not even sure it's legal to even have a quota for women or, or, or people of uh, particular ethnicities. But just so we're clear, there's no quota. There is no quota. There's no quota. There's no quota. There's no quota. Yeah, but there's a quota, right? Nope, nope. There's no quota. There's no quota. I want to just nail that down. Let's nail it down. No quota. There's no quota. <laughs> Gonna say that again. No quota. <laughs> Good, good. What Blizzard is doing is they're expanding their circle. They're taking a look at where they're hiring from, 
and where they don't hire from, and they're trying to receive more applications. That's all. They're going to get more applications from, from areas that they previously were not looking. And the job will go who, to whoever they think is best suited for the job. Nothing wrong with that. If they happen to hire a, a, a woman, they are going to attempt to retain that employee. And that's all. You know, because they're leaving at a faster rate. So if they're trying to bump that up, that's a quality. Think about it, kids. And let's stop for a moment and, and, and look at what makes Blizzard Blizzard. Look at Overwatch. Look at all the different races, genders, nationalities, sexualities that are represented in that game. If you ask me, it makes the game better. It makes the world in Overwatch feel bigger right from the get-go. But one of the things that we've always heard um, from people that are way, way, way smarter than me is that the problem with diversity initiatives is that they bring in uh, people of color, queer people, and more women. Women, which is great. That's a great idea in theory, but the workplace stays largely the same. In other words, you can't just change the workforce and then keep the company the same. You have to you have to uh, actually accommodate new employees. You have to inquire how they are, what they can do to make this a better workplace, and you also need to redevelop. You actually have to change the way that your company functions. If you're still mad after all of that, just chill out. It's good news. I promise. No one is going to be pushing out the. The white males from jobs. That's just not going to happen. That will not happen. Relax. Y'all good. It's going to be okay. Cool? Cool. Anyway, let's move on. Here's a fun light story. Spotify has come to the Xbox One. The music streaming service was made available on the PlayStation 4 back in 2015, which made it one of the most requested features on the Xbox One. Microsoft's Larry Herb, also known as Major Nelson, promoted this announcement by releasing his own Spotify playlist, which sucks. So lame, Larry Herb. Jesus Christ. Do you even listen to music? Like, seriously, I... Whatever. Uh... <laughs> But anyway, it's funny. I was thinking about this. I saw this news story. I love music. I love Spotify. I use Spotify every single day, and I play video games almost every single day. And I've never used Spotify while I've played video games before. Never. I just don't, because I think, like, I, I don't know why. I just, I, I, I don't. I used to a long time ago. I used to listen to music while I played video games, and I mean a long time ago. In fact, the last time I really remember that, I was playing Beatles Adventure Racing on the Nintendo 64, and I was listening to Sugar Ray which was, of course, their sophomore effort, 1459. A really good album. I still stand behind that. Anyway, so once I worked out my script for Lawbreakers, uh, because I like to write things before I have other influences influencing me, so I wrote down my script for Lawbreakers. I went back in and played some more with Spotify on, and I got to say, it's awesome. I highly recommend it. Spotify is a played uh, a paid service though, so you need to actually pay for it to listen to all of that music. But uh, if you're interested in, you want to know what kind of hipster bullshit I'm listening to, follow me on Twitter, at Dr. Crychop. That's at Dr. Crychop. I'm always posting links, and I like my music. Anyway, here's a happy story. Remember the Metroid 2 remake, AM2R? Well, in case you don't, a dude named Milton, uh, Goosty? I'll go with Goosty. Gustai? Gusti? Gustai? Well, anyway, he spent years making a new and improved version of the Game Boy game Metroid 2. It was released, it was awesome, and then, of course, like all fan projects, Nintendo shut it the hell down. But hey, you can still find it if you know where you're looking. Know what I'm saying? Alright, great. But now Mr. Gusti, Gustai, Gusti, he's announced that he's going to be joining the production of Ori and the Will of the Wisps, which of course is the sequel to the 2015 Metroidvania, Ori and the Blind Forest. 
And that's the way it should be right there. How good of a story is that? How nice of a story is that? Because back in the day, this used to be the norm. Fan games would get people jobs within the industry. It would, it would get them a little bit of notoriety. In fact, did you know that some MIT students made an a, a arcade mod for the game Pac-Man and called it Crazy Auto? Apparently it was a vast improvement to Pac-Man, but they couldn't legally sell it, so they brought it to Midway. Midway bought it and turned it into Miss Pac-Man. How cool is that? So congratulations for getting a job after making the excellent AMR2 or AM2R, whatever you call it. Congratulations. And uh, lastly, speaking of Pac-Man, <laughs> there's a reason I brought that Pac-Man story. A total of six people were arrested in Santa Clara, California, charged with 14 offenses of felony counterfeit. So what exactly does this have to do with video games? Well, they were selling counterfeit arcade cabinets, including Pac-Man. They made quite a bit of cash doing that as well. Uh, when they were arrested, it was found uh, the prosecutor seized over $1.2 million, which apparently was on the premises, as well as a 2015 BMW and 2012 Mercedes-Benz. And all of this is from selling $1,500 arcade cabinets over the course of three years. They were making bank. So how exactly was this discovered? Well, no one knows just yet because they haven't gone to court, obviously. Uh, but it probably doesn't help that Bandai Namco has its United States headquarters in Santa Clara. <laughs> yeah, they're in the exact same city. Oops. Probably somebody walked in and was like, that's, where, where'd you get this? <laughs> you know? Anyway, let's go on to the charts. We're going to be taking a look at the top 10 best-selling games over in the UK for the past week. Uh, number 10 was Tom Clancy's Rainbow Six Siege. Number 9 was FIFA 17. Number 8 was Miitopia. Number 7 was Battlefield 1. Number 6 was Splatoon 2, which is a huge slide-off for Splatoon 2. It was in second place for the past two weeks. Now it's down to sixth place. Number 5 was Dishonored 2. Great game. Number 4 was Doom. Great game. Number 3 was Fallout 4. Mm. Number 2 was Grand Theft Auto 5, because of course it is. And number 1... Is Crash Bandicoot Insane Trilogy, which is just making a killing on the charts. Now, Crash officially has the most number ones uh, of most number ones for consecutive weeks. No, most number ones for total weeks in the UK charts because it has five number ones for any PlayStation 4 exclusive, although it's been three weeks in a row. So there's a fun little tidbit. Crash Bandicoot Insane Trilogy is doing really well for the PlayStation 4 over in the UK. But let's go over to Japan to find out where the 10 best-selling games of the week over there. Number 10 was ARMS on the Nintendo Switch. Number 9 was Hey Pikmin on the 3DS. Number uh, 8 was The Great Attorney 1 and 2 Limited Edition on the 3DS, which is kind of... Uh Kind of disappointing because that's a brand new game and it was only on the A spot. Number seven was Layton's Mystery Journey, Catalina and the Millionaire's Conspiracy at number seven. Number six was Mario Kart 8 Deluxe on the Nintendo Switch. Number five was Crash Bandicoot Insane Trilogy on the PlayStation 4. Number four was The Great Ace Attorney 2 on the 3DS. Uh, number three was Splatoon 2 on the Nintendo Switch. And number two was Dragon Quest XI Echoes of the Elusive Age on the PlayStation 4. Number one was Dragon Age, or nope, Dragon Quest XI, very different game, uh, Echoes of the Elusive Age on the 3DS. So altogether, right now, they have sold about 2.5 million copies in just two weeks. Which for Japan is fucking bonkers. That is fucking bonkers. I cannot stress how well that game is selling over there. It's crazy. It's going to be the best-selling game in Japan of the year. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. I can't imagine something else is going to beat it. 
Crazy, crazy, crazy. But what were the best-selling consoles over in Japan? Well, let's find out. Uh, starting off with the Nintendo Switch, 61,933. PlayStation 4 with 43,862. New 2DS LL with 33,871. New 3DS LL with 22,200. PlayStation 4 Pro with 9,077. PlayStation Vita with 4,773. 2DS with 3,740. New 3DS with 1,078. Wii U with 158. Look at that drop-off. We go from the new 3DS with 1,078. The next uh, console is the Wii U with 158. That's insane. Followed by the PlayStation 3 with 96. And in last place, for the third week in a row, it's the Xbox One with 90. If it had only sold seven more units, it would have beat the PlayStation 3. That's such a bummer. Keep fighting the good fight, Xbox. But yes, the Nintendo Switch, the best-selling console in Japan for the week. But that's going to do it for the chart park, the land where money grows on trees. We have finally come to the final segment of the show. Final, final, whatever. You know what I mean. This is where we take a look back at the week that was 10 years ago and beyond to find out if there's anything historic, anything worth looking at. And there usually is. It's a little something we like to call strong history. 11 years ago on the PlayStation 2, Dirge of Cerberus Final Fantasy 7 was released. I actually bought a copy of this a couple of years back because it's one of the Final Fantasy games I don't think Square Enix will ever remake or re-release. See, even back in 2006, people already wanted a Final Fantasy 7 remake. But Square Enix was like, nah, we got a better idea. Mobile games, third person shooters, PSP exclusives. How about a movie? And the results were... <laughs> Dirge of Cerberus starred Vincent. You know, the only character that actually used a gun. You know, he didn't have a gun built into his arm. He, he just used guns. So he was put in a fairly bland third-person shooter with a bad camera. In fact, it was so bad that before they released it in the West, they actually went back and tried to fix the game. And it still sucked. And yet I still bought it. Like a loser. 12 years ago, on the GameCube, Geist was released. Now, speaking of forgotten games, Nintendo actually published and helped develop Geist. It was a first-person shooter where you played as a ghost. Altogether, uh, you know, not, not a very good game, but it was kind of neat. What you do is you take over objects and you'd make them rattle, which would scare these, like, militant soldiers. And then when they were scared enough, you took over their bodies and then you fought other soldiers. Not amazing, but kind of neat. Also, back then, on the PlayStation Portable, the PSP, Death Jr. was released. Now, Death Jr., I laugh because poor Death Jr., for whatever reason, this game was hyped as, as the must-own game for the PSP. Like, this is why you bought a PSP, Death Jr. It was a platformer where you played as a tinier version of Death, obviously. But it, when it was released, critics cited the problematic control scheme and uninspired design. Weirdly enough, though, there was a comic book tie-in that was written by Gary Whitta the former game critic and the co-writer of Rogue One. Yes, the Star Wars movie. Kinda crazy. Also that same week, in that same year, Dark Watch was released on the Xbox and PlayStation 2. Now imagine this concept. You're in the Old West, you're a gunslinger, you're a vampire, you fight other monsters that are also gunslingers in the Old West. How fucking cool is that, right? Well, it was alright. Dark Watch was a serviceable first-person shooter, which was weirdly enough published by Capcom. Yes, Capcom made a first-person shooter. But the funny part is, is that the developer High Moon Studios moved on to bigger and better things. They went on to make Transformers games, and, and now, this year, this fall, they'll be launching Destiny 2 alongside their fellow developer Bungie. They named it High Moon because it was kind of gothic, 
And now they have games that take place on the moon. How cool is that? It is very, very cool. 14 years ago on the PlayStation 2, Virtual Fighter 4 Evolution was released. Now there's no fun facts for this one. I just put this in here to tell you that, god damn, Virtual Fighter 4. It's one of the best 3D fighting games of all time. It might be the best 3D fighting game of all time. It is a must play. Seriously, get out the CRTs, enjoy yourself. It's badass. 17 years ago on the original PlayStation, Chrono Cross was released. Now we were just talking about this at the beginning of the show. And when Chrono Cross was announced, people got really hyped for it. You got to remember, this was going to be the follow-up to Chrono Trigger. And that was one of the most beloved JRPGs at the time. Hell, in many ways, it popularized JRPGs in the West. But uh, little did they know that, um, what's this guy's name? <laughs> I feel bad. Masato Kato, who is, of course, the director of the game, he simply wanted to borrow elements from Chrono Trigger. He didn't want to make a sequel for it. And so the beloved characters and a lot of the mechanics went largely absent. Now, if you believe what others say, today at least, Chrono Cross was an instant classic when it launched, and it's true, it's a great game. But I was there when it came out, and almost everyone I knew stopped playing Chrono Cross after the first day. They sat down, tried to play the game, went, this is nothing like Chrono Trigger, and then they walked away, which was really, really sad, because Chrono Cross was remarkably deep in terms of characters and stories and mechanics. Frankly, there's no other 3D RPG out there like it. And that's a shame. That's a real shame. And think about this for a second. If people really loved Chrono Cross that much, wouldn't they have made some sort of a sequel over the past 17 years? I mean, it's, it's Squaresoft after all. They're not shy about making sequels. Just saying. 18 years ago on the original PlayStation, Legacy of Kain Soul Reaver was released. Now, speaking of sequels that have little to no relation to their original, Soul Reaver wasn't even meant to be connected to the Legacy of Kain. It was supposed to be its own title called Shifter, about a man who could shift between dimensions in an instant. Crystal Dynamics was like, hey, that's a cool idea, but how about you make a sequel to Blood Omen? And so the director and writers connected the storylines, where vampires ruled the world for over a thousand years and they began to evolve into creepy new creatures. However, one named Raziel was killed for surpassing the king, who's known as Cain, and he would be dumped into the void. Anyway, he'd be revived another thousand years later and would become the Soul Reaver. He would consume souls instead of blood while fighting vampires. Now that's pretty cool, right? Well, too bad, because development went a bit crazy, and so they had to cut out a bunch of their story, including the ending that just sort of happened. But even then, it was a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant game. Just, the story never ended. It would get you all hyped up, but the story would never end. Even when they made sequels, the story never properly wrapped up. But that's okay, because the director, and the writer, and basically the creator of Soul Reaver, Amy Hennig, well, she did all right for herself. She ended up at Naughty Dog and became the creative force behind the Uncharted series. So, not bad. Cool little tidbit. Uh, also, that same week, Um Jammer Lammy was launched on the PlayStation. Man, how do you follow up Prap with a Rappa? A game about a rapping dog? Well, by making a game about a rockin' lamb, of course. This is one of my favorite games of all time. The music is top-notch. The story about a guitar player trying to make it to a gig is packed with pure nonsense, which is amazing. And you can even unlock a new game plus where you play as Prappa. It's genius. I talk about it more, but... We should just move on. 19 years ago, on the Nintendo 64, Mission Impossible was released. Okay, now, I want to say this real quick. This game sucks. It's based off of the original Mission Impossible movie, which is also not that good of a movie. But I played this game a lot. Why? Well, let me tell you. 
It was a game that was based around a series of levels that ran like clockwork. At certain times, certain things would happen. And to fit in during these events, you would have to kidnap people and disguise yourself as said people. And you know what that makes it? A prototype for Hitman. Think about it. Just saying. 22 years ago. Oh, yes. I knew we were going to get to this eventually. <laughs> August 14th, 1995. The Virtual Boy. All right. This story gets played up a bunch, so let's just run through it. Gunpei Yonkoi. You never heard that name? Well, you should. He's one of the all-time greatest people in video games of all time. All-time genius. Can't stress it enough. Gunpei Yonkoi is a genius. He made the fucking Game Boy. Come on. Come on. He'd been with Nintendo before they even got into video games. He was making toys for them. He was a genius. An absolute genius. Well, he was working on the Virtual Boy, which at this point... Even to this day, I'm still not convinced was really supposed to be released. And then, the Nintendo 64, it gets delayed from 1995 to 1996, and Nintendo's like, well, we need something for this holiday season. release the Virtual Boy. And he's like, huh? I don't... Wait, I don't think you should do this. <laughs> and he was right. It wasn't great. First of all, it wasn't a portable system. It was a weird pair of goggles that came with a stand, and... I don't know, a, a, a controller, a pretty good controller, but everything else was just bizarre about it. And no matter how hard you tried, you just couldn't sit comfortably and play the Virtual Boy. It just wasn't possible. And if by some miracle you were comfortable when you were sitting down, your eyes would be strained by the black and red graphics. The games themselves were, well, the games themselves were fine. They were nothing all that memorable. They were good. There were some good games on the Virtual Boy, but the method to play them is just awful. By the way, we're going to close out this episode by playing some music from the Virtual Boy, a game called Jack Bros, which is the most rare game in the United States. Awesome soundtrack. Anyway, it failed to sell less than 800,000 units. Most into, I keep getting hair right in my eye. I don't know what's going on. What is this? I got like a strain of, sorry, sorry. Anyway. I can't get it. I give up. Anyway, it failed to sell less than 800,000 units. Nintendo ditched it, and Yokoi was given, who I want to mention once again is a fucking genius, Yokoi was given a window seat, which basically means Nintendo wouldn't fire him because he's too well known, but they also wouldn't let him do anything. So he's just trapped there, and in Japanese business, you don't leave a company after that long. So, mm. I would talk about what happened afterwards, but we'll save that for a future episode of Strong History. So fuck the Virtual Boy, even though I think it's kind of cool, it fucked over Gunpei Yonkoi, who was a genius and deserved better. And goddamn Nintendo. Anyway, <laughs> 24 years ago, Eternal Champions was launched on the Sega Genesis. Now this is not a good fighting game, but I love it. The story was about the greatest fighters of all time, and I mean of all time, brought together to uh, fight in a tournament, and if they won, they could be reborn. How cool is that? You had cyborgs fighting wizards in the Vietnam War. If that doesn't deserve a reboot, I don't know what does. 26 years ago, F-Zero, Gradius 3, Pilot Wings, SimCity, Super Mario World, and of course, the Super Nintendo were launched. That's right. It's been 26 years. Also, 28 years ago this week, uh, Alex Kidd, Altered Beast, and the Sega Genesis were launched in North America 28 years ago. So in the same week, just different years, the SNES and the Genesis uh, were released, which is weird. I, I find it hard to believe it was launched in August. That seems like something for a holiday season, but I guess not. They were both launched in August. 
Um, you know, the thing about Strong History is that we like to cover the more obscure games. I don't really like to go out of my way to cover things that everyone's already talked about. But if I could say one thing about the Super Nintendo and the Sega Genesis rivalry is that it really... It, it was awesome back in the day. It was totally awesome. You can you can really justify owning a Super Nintendo and a Genesis because the libraries are so different, and there there are obvious advantages in some versions on different platforms. Uh, mostly, I would say with the Sega Genesis having better third-party versions of games, with the exception being some fighting games like like Street Fighter, which performed better on the uh, Super Nintendo. But one thing I always want to say, and I really want to get this across, is that people say. Oh, these, these, these Super Nintendo games, they hold up so much better than the Genesis games. They're better than the Genesis games because they hold up better. And I'm going to tell you right now, that is a lie. That is a lie that you've been force-fed. Hear me out. The reason why those games hold up better is because the philosophy of Nintendo continued to exist. The philosophy of Sega after the 16-bit generation, it pretty much floundered, at least here in North America. That's something I always want to bring up, is that the idea that, oh, Nintendo games hold up better. Well, that's because every game that's come out since then has been influenced and borrows from Nintendo. People don't borrow from Sega anymore because Sega was considered to be a failure. But if you stick with a Sega game, if you play a Sega game, you spend an hour with it, it makes more, it makes total sense. And it's unlike anything else that's out today. Seriously. Uh, even when you compare it against Nintendo's own genres, look at something like um, Shining Force 2, great JRPG, turn-based. Compare that to Fire Emblem. In some ways, and I'm talking about the Fire Emblems from back then, I would say Shining Force is, is vastly superior. Now, Fire Emblem is a better game because they've worked on it for a longer period of time, but back in the day, you compare the two, no way, Shining Force is way, 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 way better. I, I don't know, I feel like I'm rambling here, but I just feel that the Sega Genesis gets short shrift because I think what happened, and this is my personal belief, is that uh, the generation that grew up with the Genesis, they got to a certain age and they're like, oh, okay, I'm done with video games now, I'm a grown-up. They got done with video games. Whereas I feel like Nintendo fans, because that was like the dorkier console, and I know that's going to offend some people, but let's be honest, if you're playing Yoshi and you're like 14, it's the dorkier console. I think what happened is that a lot of those people uh, stuck with video games, whereas other people bounced out. So I, I don't feel like when you look at the games press, when you look at media, people that write about video games, it's mostly Super Nintendo people because they, they stuck with it. I wish more Genesis players had stuck with video games because I feel like there would still be an appetite for, for Genesis style games. That's me on my soapbox, but and I'm, I'm not calling out Nintendo. Clearly they did something right. I'm not calling out any of those journalists out there. They're clearly doing good work if that's the narrative that people uh, continue to believe. But me personally, it was a lot closer than people like to think. Super Nintendo, great console. Genesis, great console. Neck and neck. On any given day, Genesis might be better than Super Nintendo. That's controversial to say now, and it's ridiculous. So many good games. So many good games. I'm, whatever. I'm going to stop rambling. If you listen to this show long enough, you'll know that I like to call out specific Genesis games, because they were great. They were awesome. Anyway, 30 years ago, on the NES in Japan, Air Fortress was released. This is one of my all-time favorite shooters. It's a shooter and a platformer. You fly into a base, and it's a shooter, and then you land inside the base, and it's like a, a, a platformer, and then you blow up the base, and it turns into a shooter while everything's exploding. It is badass. Air Fortress, go play that game. It's super good. 32 years ago, Game Studio Incorporated was founded in Japan. And the only reason I put this in here is because there's a company called Game Studio that's a game studio that is the most generic name for a game studio ever. I feel like I'm repeating myself, but really, that it's called Game Studio and it's a game studio. Either way, it was formed by uh, Mashinobu Ito. He apparently was a designer that left uh, Namco in the early 80s. 
So what exactly did Game Studio make? Well, just a bunch of weird shit. For instance, they made a sequel to Mappy called Hopping Mappy. Where it was just Mappy on a pogo stick. I don't- I don't know what that's about. And their final game, which was released in 1999, was Columns GB, uh, Tezuka Osamu Characters. Which was a puzzle game. Columns. Same old columns. On the Game Boy Color, except the cover of it had a picture of Astro Boy. Whatever. So Game Studio Incorporated, happy birthday, even though you're dead. And that's gonna have to do it <laughs> for Strong History. Good show. Good show. I really believe that thing about Genesis, though. Go back and play some Genesis games. And, and I feel like uh, a lot of people play Genesis games on shitty emulators. That's not a problem. Because people don't spend as much time working on the Genesis stuff. Still don't have a Sega Saturn emulator. Still, still don't really have a, a really, really good Dreamcast emulator. We have an okay Dreamcast emulator, but it requires a lot of power. Just whatever. Sega's awesome. Was awesome. Today, they're, they're pretty good. I like Yakuza. Other things, eh. Anyway. But now it's time to close up the show. We're playing some music from uh, Jack Bros. I hope you're enjoying that. What's going to be coming up this week? Well, hopefully I'm going to have something out regarding uh, Lawbreakers. Hopefully that'll be out soon. And then I'm going to be following that up uh, with a thing on Sonic Mania. If not this week, then next week. Tons of stuff coming up. We're about to hit the fall season. There's going to be a lot of video games out, and I am going to cover as many games as possible. And I hope you'll be there with me. Please go to iTunes, give this five stars and a written review. Please go to YouTube, share the video, throw it on the Twitter, throw it on the Facebook, throw it on the Reddit, throw it wherever you like. I want more viewers. <laughs> God damn it. Oh, speaking of God damn it, make sure to answer the question for uh, tell me, God damn it. But yes, this is the end of the episode. Everything must end. Just like Game Studio Incorporated. So sad. So sad. But uh, the pressure cast will never close because it's not a game studio. And also, the pressure cast is forever. <laughs> That's a lame ending, but I'll see you guys. <laughs>